millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ tonight. Uh, Revelation 20. I appreciate Rick singing that song on this night. Revelation 20 is a controversial chapter, especially the beginning of the chapter, um, because of two words. There are two words in that book or in that chapter that have caused controversy uh, for centuries and centuries. And those two words are thousand years. Um, Tonight, we're going to probably be more on the teaching side of things uh, because of the controversy in this chapter. We're talking tonight about the millennium, a 1,000-year preview of heaven on earth. The millennial kingdom is not a heavenly kingdom. It is an earthly kingdom. It's here. The world capital becomes the city of Jerusalem. Jesus sits on the throne of David. And so we're looking tonight at a thousand-year preview of what it looks like when Jesus Christ is in complete control and it is evidenced in the planet. Let me say that today Jesus Christ is in complete control. It just doesn't look like it to those who might be short-sighted. But he is in control. One day he's going to come and set all things right. And that's going to begin in the millennial kingdom or the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. Historically in theology, there are three views of the millennial kingdom. Let's, recover, let's cover those quickly in a review. And these are the dominant views. Each of these views, by the way, have little offshoots. And they have little uh, uh, branches that run off even deeper into whatever they are, uh, whatever they're purporting. First, there is the uh, the post-millennial view. This is generally this is what this this uh, view of the millennium says: that the world is getting progressively better, and that as it gets better and better, we will usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What are the chances of that happening in the world you're living in? Yeah, that's how I feel. This is a false view of the millennium, and it has been losing followers for decades. Uh, really, since World War II, this, this particular view, the post-millennialism, it has plummeted in the number of people that advocate it. A more readily acceptable view of this is the amillennialist view. We have a lot of amillennial pastors in our area in eastern Tennessee and in western North Carolina because for a long time that was the view that was propagated in the seminaries in this region. And so there are a lot of amillennialists here. The amillennialist believes that says, uh, it, it believes that the millennial of, the millennial reign of Christ is spiritual more than physical and that we are living now In the kingdom of Christ. They take Revelation chapter 20 and they spiritualize especially the text that we're going to look at tonight. This is another false view of uh, of millennialism. There is a branch of this that's called preterism. If you've ever heard that term. Preterism teaches that the events of... Uh, that the events of the book of Revelation actually occurred in the first century. Now, that's a, that's a very broad description of preterism, but that's the core. Preterism is more complex than that, but the, but the main thrust of preterism, which is an, it's an amillennial view, is that the events of the book of Revelation occurred in the first century. And then finally, there's post-millennial, post-millennialism, amillennialism. Finally, there is pre-millennialism. This is a, this is a uh, doctrine that purports that the world continues to morally decline and will eventually, after the rapture, enter into a seven-year tribulation period. Jesus will return at the end of that seven years, defeat the Antichrist, and, ush- and usher in a literal kingdom on planet Earth that lasts for 1,000 years. This is the only view that comes to Revelation chapter 20 and gives it a literal interpretation. Faith Baptist Church is a premillennial church. This is the view to which we hold. It puts everything into perspective when it comes to the rapture, the tribulation period, 
the second coming of Christ that leads to the millennial kingdom and then on off into eternity. So we're going to look at tonight these first 10 verses in a controversial chapter, and I hope to further impress what you already believe. Faith Baptist Church, we hold collectively, we hold to the premillennialist view. Hopefully these verses will encourage that view and strengthen it in you. Verses 1 through 10, talking about the millennial reign of Christ. And let me say this before we read these verses. There's not a lot of detail here. Um, John gives us two things. He gives us the fact of the millennial kingdom, and he gives us the duration of it. Jesus Christ will reign, and he'll do it for a thousand years. And that's all he tells us. As you will see, the Bible is full with hundreds and hundreds of verses that talk about the millennial reign of Christ. But for John tonight, all we're going to glean from him is that there's a kingdom coming, and it's going to last a thousand years, and we get to be part of it. Not a lot of facts and details, but he does give us, uh, he does give us this truth. So we're going to look at this millennial kingdom. And by the way, it's the last kingdom on planet Earth that will be defined by time. You can go back and look at every world kingdom that has existed. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and you have a beginning date and an end date. They'll tell you it lasted for this long. The millennial reign of Christ is the last one of all the world kingdoms that is going to be defined by years. After that, we go into eternity, and it's just Jesus for eternity. Not, and you don't even, it's improper for us to say the rest of eternity, because there is no rest of eternity. That sounds like there's an end to it. There's not. After the 1,000 year reign of Christ, it is just Jesus on the throne. So this will be great tonight. Um, and you're going to ask yourself, well, let's read this first. And then I, I'm going to tell you, I have a, a long introduction. I use this analogy uh, often. It's a big front porch but a little house. So if we don't get to the main outline for several minutes, don't worry. We're not going to be here till 930. It's just a big front porch. Let's read these first 10 verses and then continue on about, about some things about the millennium to see what the Bible says in general. And then finally tonight, we'll come to the 10 verses that John has. All right? Verse number 1, Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good passage of scripture. 
It's exactly what we were singing about tonight. It's exactly about what Brother Rick sang about just a few moments ago. This is when Jesus Christ, uh, his, his victory that was won on Calvary, this is when it is fully exposed over his last enemies. Let's look at this uh, passage of Scripture. Now, you might be asking yourself, before we get into this outline, you might be asking yourself, I wrote this question, why do we need the millennium? You ever asked yourself that? Why do we need the millennium? Why not wind it all up after the great tribulation period? I mean, what is it that ends the great tribulation? What, what ends it? The battle of Armageddon. All those enemies are there. Why not just wipe everybody out that's against Christ, take those tribulation saints that survived the tribulation, and let's just go right on into eternity? Why this 1,000-year pause? Well, there are reasons for them. The millennium fulfills his Old Testament prophecies to the nation of Israel for a kingdom. God promised Old Testament Israel a kingdom. The millennium fulfills that. The millennium puts Jesus Christ in all of his glory on full display. This world that had no idea who he was when he came the first time, they will know, every one of them will know during the thousand-year reign of Christ. He's ruling the world with a rod of iron, Scripture says, from a wonderful world capital in Jerusalem. The millennium also answers the prayer in the model prayer, Thy kingdom come. Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come to earth as it is. Uh, as it should be thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven but before he said that he said thy kingdom come this answers that prayer the millennium fulfills the promise that saints will reign with jesus christ where where else are they going to do that we're not going to be reigning for all of eternity the politics and and the governmental system is only established through the millennium after that There's no more need for government and politics. It brings about the complete redemption of creation. Ultimately, there's going to come a new heaven and a new earth, and everything's going to be made new. That's going to culminate the millennial kingdom. And then the last thing is this, and we'll talk about this tonight. God's grace is just so fantastic. But here's the last reason we need the millennium. If you can believe how long-suffering God is, the millennium gives people a final test under the rule of Jesus Christ. There are going to be millions born during the millennium that are not going to be saved. Just because people are born in the millennium doesn't mean they're going to heaven at the end of that thousand years. And here is God. Here is God saying, this is my son. He's the king. John doesn't give all of these details of how things operate in the millennium. But there are, as I said a moment ago, hundreds of scriptures. And for your your peace of mind, we're not turning to all of them tonight. But I want to run down a partial list of the things that are going to characterize the millennial kingdom of Christ. And if you would like a list of all those scriptures, I'll give them to you. I'm not even going to read this list because... For some of these things, there's 15 different scripture verses that purport what's going to show up in the millennium. I'll tell you this, if you want to, make yourself more familiar with the millennial kingdom of Christ in the book of Isaiah. All but one of the list I'm about to show you, all but one of those things has multiple references in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is, and we like to go to Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9 and talk about Christ's first coming. Isaiah was infatuated. Can I use that word? He was infatuated with the millennial kingdom. There are, there are uh, verse after, verses after verses after verses in the book of Isaiah that talk about what it's going to be like to live under King Jesus. Let's look at some of those things tonight. First thing, the biggest thing it's going to mark it is going to be peace. All wars will come to a stop. There will be no wars for a thousand... Can you imagine this? No wars on the entire planet in any nation for 1,000 years. We've never had that 
in any 1,000-year period since creation. 1,000 years, peace comes, joy. All of the king's subjects are going to be happy. Holiness. This is going to be a holy kingdom. If there's rebellion, Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. The Bible says in Revelation 19.15. Glory. This kingdom is going to be absolutely glorious with the glory of Jesus Christ on full display. The world's citizens can travel to Jerusalem and physically see Jesus as John describes him at least twice in the book of Revelation, glorified. Comfort. Jesus will fully minister to every need, mark this, so that there is not a need on planet earth. Comfort. Justice. Perfect justice will be administered so that no court of appeals is needed anywhere in the world. The fullness of knowledge. There's going to be an increase in the teaching ministry of the Holy Ghost and it will, in, it will result in the enhanced mental capabilities of God's people. I can use that. Can you, do you ever feel like it? I need some enhancement here. Instruction. The Bible says repeatedly in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah that Jesus is going to instruct his people in the ways of God. The removal of sin's curse. The curse that showed up on the planet, not just in the hearts of people, but on the planet itself. The removal that showed up in Genesis chapter 3 is going to be removed. The result of that will be an increase in the productivity of the planet. In the wild, animals will lose their, their ferocity. You've heard the phrase, the lion lying down with the lamb. That's not a metaphor. That's not allegorical. The lion will not chase the Thompson gazelle anymore on the plains of Africa. Not going to happen. The removal of sin's curse. You know what else? Sickness and disease are going to be removed. The great physician is also the king of the world, so sickness and death vanishes. Death will only exist as a punishment for extreme sin, according to the scripture. The healing of the deformed, all deformities will be healed. Isaiah covers that in two different chapters of his prophecy. Protection, there will be a supernatural preservation of life during the millennial kingdom. No oppression, socially, politically, racially, religiously, no oppression anywhere in the planet. And I didn't know how else to word this. No immaturity. It seems that there will be no mental retardation. No dwarfed bodies. Extreme longevity of life is going to be restored. How is that possible? Jesus is ruling the planet. Childbearing. Saints who survived the tribulation period and believing Jews that enter the millennium after the tribulation period ends, they are going to have kids. Lots of them. The population of the earth is going to soar. What is one of the things that we talked about during the tribulation period that's going to happen to the population of the earth? It's going to be decimated. You read here that 20% 20 of the planet... Uh, the population is killed or destroyed. You read again that 25% of what was left of that 80%, it's destroyed. All you read about is death by the millions in the tribulation period. But in the thousand-year reign of Christ, the population of the planet is going to explode. Can I pause here and say this to you? Don't listen to people that talk about the need for population control on the planet. God never created a planet, Earth, and left it up to men how many people should live on it. Satan, uh, Satan has used a lot of false idealism and philosophies that has resulted in abortion and in euthanasia and whatever, however many. Think of all the Chinese children that were killed because of the law that said you can only have one child per home. 
God was never for that. The millennium is going to prove that we don't have the ability to destroy God's planet. I'm just, I'm not being political tonight. I'm just telling you, God's the one who's going to destroy the planet if it's going to get destroyed. In fact, it is. He's going to make a new earth. And during, the, during this 1,000-year reign, the population is going to, it's going to explode. What's another thing that marks the millennial reign, that 1,000 years? The workforce, labor, a perfect economic system in which all needs are met by the world's labor force is going to happen under the direction of Jesus Christ. It'll be a fully industrialized world. Every part of the economy is going to click. Economic prosperity follows on its heels. A perfect labor situation produces economic abundance. There's going to be no want in the world. It's going to result also in unified worship. The entire world will worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, the fullness of the Spirit. All of those who are subject to King Jesus are going to experience a divine enablement and the presence of the Holy Spirit with without a sin nature. Do you, do you know that during, during the millennial reign, if you're saved, you'll have no sin barrier for a thousand years. There's no sin barrier blocking the effectiveness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you and me. We have no idea what that looks like because all we know is the Holy Spirit residing in us with our sin nature. Paul says, I can't, I, I, I can't do the things I uh, want to do and I do those things I don't want to do. I've got this, this nature in me. In Romans 7, he said, I got this nature in me. It just fights these things. During the, during the millennial kingdom, Christian, you'll have nothing holding you back from being fully submitted to the Holy Spirit's leadership in your life. That's going to be great. Those are just a few of the things that are characteristics of this coming kingdom. And again, if I can just encourage you, I, I didn't list all of these scriptures tonight. If you will read the book of Isaiah with the filter of the millennial kingdom and see the hundreds of things that he says about it. It's incredible. The book of Isaiah is really about the book of it's really about a book of the kingdom that's coming. So let's get into this outline of these 10 of uh, of these 10 verses and start with this tonight, a prophecy involving Satan. That's the first point. That was all introduction. That's why I wanted you to know ahead of time, big porch, little house. Let's leave the porch, go into the house. And break up these ten verses. The first three verses tell us about a prophecy involving Satan. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon. Already, don't you like this angel? That laid hold means to fiercely grab. You ever seen somebody get grabbed? Or has it been you? You ever been grabbed by the nape of your neck? Dad reached down. You're doing something you ought not do. And all of a sudden, Dad... Dad just reaches to take hold back of your shirt or back of hair, whatever you got. And he takes full control at that point, doesn't he? Hands up, we're surrendering. This angel comes down and grabs, fiercely grabs. He lays hold on the devil. That's the first time we've seen this. This angel is empowered by God himself. So first what we have here is we have a heavenly intervention. A heavenly intervention. This angel comes down. Devil's been doing whatever he wants to do for seven years. He's been going at it. But when the kingdom comes, it starts with an angel coming from heaven with a key, the key to the bottomless pit. And the Bible says a great chain in his hand. What's he up to? Well, verse 2, he laid hold on the dragon. This is a great intervention and he binds him with this great chain and the holy spirit especially christians we need to know the holy spirit wants us to be clear as to who is being thrown in the pit when you read verse number two do you have any doubt who we're talking about i mean look how look how much the holy spirit repeats himself he says he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent the devil satan what, what else do you want me to say here? It's like the Holy Spirit says, what else do you want me to say here? That old serpent, Genesis chapter 3, the devil, the deceiver, Satan, the accuser, all of these things, all of those names are pointing to the character of your enemy. First, he calls him the dragon. 
The dragon looks for people to destroy. Then he calls him that old serpent. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. He's looking for people to deceive. Then he calls him the devil or false accuser. He's looking for people to defame. And finally, he calls him Satan, our enemy. He's looking for people he can defeat. He says four different names and titles for this individual, this fallen angel, to tell you exactly who he's talking about. And this is great because it may appear like Satan is winning the war in the world today. It may seem like everything's uh, going completely downhill as fast as it can and out of control. But Satan doesn't have what God has. And that's omnipotence. God is omnipotent. God has the last word, not Satan. And he sends an angel down. And there are there is another passage in the scripture where the Bible says this certain angel wouldn't contest with Satan. But here, God enables this angel to go down and grab the devil by the back of the neck. And he binds him with this chain. It is a heavenly intervention. And that leads us to verse number three. The intervention leads to a heavenly incarceration. Throws him in prison. He throws him into this this bottomless pit. He takes the devil and he removes him from earth for a thousand years. And there is a world with no satanic influence. Would you mark that down? For 1,000 years, there is a world with absolutely no satanic influence. Keep this in mind. He's not omnipresent. Satan is either in this room with us tonight, or he's in China, or he's uh, before God accusing the brethren, or he's in London, or he's in South America. But he's not everywhere present all at once. And for 1,000 years, this fallen angel is going to be put into a bottomless pit, and he's going to be there and only there. He has no influence outside of the bottomless pit. Just stop and think for a moment. Try to. It's hard to imagine because it's all we know. Think about a world without any satanic influence. I hear Louis Armstrong in the background singing, What a Wonderful World, don't you? Skies of blue, all of that. No satanic influence anywhere in the planet. No demonic influence. No demonic oppression. He is incarcerated in a supermax prism designed by God himself. No influence. And while the earth rejoices in his absence, I think Satan's going to be getting a small taste of what his eternity is going to look like. He's bound and thrown into this bottomless pit. That phrase, bottomless pit, is the, the word from which we get our word abyss. I have no idea how that works. He's thrown into a bottomless pit. Have you ever had the dream where you're falling? Even if you're not afraid of fights, of, of, of flight, that's very, that, that's very disconcerting in a dream, isn't it? To feel like you're falling. You jerk awake. Imagine falling for 1,000 years into darkness. He's, he's in here for a thousand years. What does he do for a thousand years? I, I, I put down, apparently he just falls and bides his time. I mean, it's a bottomless pit. There's no place to grab. He is going to serve a full 1,000-year sentence. Do you, you, you know of these crimes that are, are reported, and sometimes they're horrific crimes against people, and this person might get two life sentences and 400 years. And they'll say, the judge will say something like this. That's to be conserved consecutively. Serve one life sentence, and then after that, serve another life sentence. Then after that, serve 400 years. And you're like, well, he's actually going to serve about 60 or 80 years, and he's going to die. Satan is sentenced to 1,000 years, and he serves 1,000 literal years. During the millennial kingdom, the earth is still orbiting around the sun. 365 days and 1,000 years, he's going to be serving his sentence. That place has been reserved, that bottomless pit has been reserved for 
certain spirits, it says in Jude chapter 6. We talked about that in our adult Bible study fellowship when we started our, when we started our series. And it seems to be some type of prison where God puts certain spirits, demons, on this particular event, he puts him there. So that's the prophecy involving Satan. He is serving a thousand years in the bottomless pit, and then it says he's going to be released for a short time. We'll talk about that in just a moment. For right now, I want you to rejoice in the fact that for a thousand years, you and I are going to know absolutely no satanic influence, no temptation. I, I just like to have six or eight hours without temptation, wouldn't you? A thousand years is a great thing to consider. So there's a prophecy, first of all, in verses 1 through 3 that involves Satan. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, there's a prophecy involving the saints, the saints of God. It says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of men that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. All through this, and let me just pause and say this, all through this passage, God keeps coming back to that thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. This is why I believe it's literal. He just keeps hammering that thought. It's a literal kingdom that's coming. In these verses, he has this prophecy involving the saints. So let's talk about the saints here. First of all, the saints and their reign. Their reign. That's the first part of verse number four. There's coming a day, the Bible says, when believers are going to rule the earth with Jesus. Can we just do a quick review of what leads up to this reign of the saints? There is the rapture that could happen any day. We say that the rapture is imminent. That means can happen at any time. There's nothing in the Bible that is preventing the rapture of the church right now. It could happen before we finish this service or I finish a sentence. There is the rapture of the church. We meet him in the clouds. He takes his bride to heaven. He conducts, he conducts the judgment seat of Christ, followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the conclusion of that, Jesus returns to the earth with his bride, who is now his army, and he comes back to defeat his enemies and establish this kingdom that we're talking about and allows us to reign with him for a thousand years. If you'd like, we're not going to take the time to turn there. Jot down 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. There's the sequence that's coming. We're going to reign with Christ. The whole planet will be governed by those who are serving Christ in the political system. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered where you're going to serve in that government? Just where is God going to post you? Somebody's going to be the governor of the state of Tennessee if it still exists as a state. My brother-in-law, Mike Wenzel, pastors the Faith Baptist Church up in Townsend, Montana. He got to Broadwater County in... Uh, 1989, he got there in August of 89. He's pastored that church since September or October of 1989. He's pastored there a long time. Mike's been praying for the last 31 years that God will let him have that valley in Broadwater County to be his post during the Millennial Kingdom. He said, if God gives me this valley to reign in, I will be happy. There's elk here. There's pheasants here. He said, it's going to be great. You ever wondered where God's going to post you on the planet as you reign? There's going to be a governmental system set up under King Jesus. You're going to reign physically somewhere if you're a child of God. Better put your requests in early. That's what I'm saying. The saints and their reign. They're going to reign with him. The second thing in the second part of verse 4, it talks about the saints and their reward. The saints and their reward. This is talking about, the middle part of that verse is talking about another group of people. The first part of verse 4, talks about the church, the people sitting on the thrones. Remember the 24 elders 
we've met earlier, sitting on thrones. That's the church. But then verse, verse 4 in the middle of the verse introduces us to another group of people. These are the people who endured the horrors of the tribulation. Did you catch that reading through it? I mean, you saw it. These were those who lived during the tribulation, didn't bow down to the beast, didn't take his mark, didn't bow down to the image of the beast. So you have the church reigning, and now it says that the tribulation saints are going to have a part in this reign as well. Not just those that were martyred, but those that endured and survived the seven years of the tribulation period. The Bible says they reign with him as well. Daniel chapter 7 Verse number 27 indicates that Old Testament saints reign during this time as well. They're not part of the bride, the church, but they do have a place ruling in the millennium. So let's think about that world. When you read the scriptures, and, and you, ought to, you ought to practice a literal interpretation of the Bible. But when you read the scriptures and come to a place like this, pause and meditate on the scripture. Let's do that for just a moment. Imagine this world where there's no devil and no influence. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and tribulation saints inhabit and rule the whole planet under the leadership of Jesus Christ. Every political position, now think about this, Every political position in the world is occupied by someone who's in love and worships the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that world. This is our hope. This is how Christians endure the days that we're living through now. This is how Christians endure that feeling of being fed up with politics in this world because there's coming a day when a perfect governmental system will exist. You could be walking down the road and bump into Jeremiah or David. A perfect, a perfect world. You could set an appointment with Paul in the millennial kingdom. It's coming one day. Say, Pastor, that sounds like a fairy tale. I know. It does. Because we can't imagine a world like this. It's not been known for six or 7,000 years. We've never seen a planet that exists without the sin's curse. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know what it's like, like to have perfect government leaders, to not be tempted every day and every night, to know no temptation. We have no way to imagine that. It does sound like a fairy tale. And as Christians, we say, bring it on. And John would say, bring it soon. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You have the saints and their reign, the saints and their reward, and then in verses 5 and 6, the resurrection. The saints and their resurrection. Verse number 5 says, but the rest of the dead live not again. The saints and their resurrection. These two verses point to two different resurrections. The Bible teaches that there's two great resurrections. Some believe in one general resurrection at which all of the dead, saved and unsaved, are raised at one time. The saved will go to heaven immediately. The unsaved will go to hell immediately. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches there is a first resurrection. In fact, that's how verse number five closes out. It's the first resurrection. Well, if someone says there's first, then what do you automatically know? There's at least a second Acts 24:15 says that there is a resurrection of the dead both of the just and of the unjust or the saved and the unsaved. But Luke 14:14 14, 14 divides that and says there's one resurrection where it's just the just. The resurrection of the just John chapter 5 and verse 29 says that there is the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation, two different things. So when Acts uh, 24.15 says a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust, he's saying there is a resurrection of the just and there's a resurrection of the unjust. There is a resurrection that leads to life 
And there is a resurrection of the dead that is going to result in damnation. Two resurrections. The people being talked about in verses 4 and 5, are, uh, or verse 4 rather, is talking about the first resurrection. This is where it gets confusing, and I don't want to. But I, if, you'll, if you'll allow me, I'll read what I wrote, because I want this to be clear in your minds. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the saints in all ages. It is the resurrection of life. Every saint, Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation, all of them are resurrected in the first resurrection. It occurs, the first resurrection occurs in two parts. The first part at the beginning of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. The second part of the first resurrection occurs at the, sec- at the second coming of Christ, where the tribulation saints are resurrected. But it's all considered the first resurrection. Because in the first resurrection, the only ones that are raised are those who know Jesus. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when we talk about the coming of the Lord. We say the coming of the Lord has two parts, the rapture and the return. But it's all called the coming of the Lord. Now we're talking about the first resurrection. It has two parts, at the rapture and at the return. But it's all the first resurrection. It is the resurrection of the just, as Luke called it in Luke 14. It's the resurrection of life that John refers to in John chapter 5. The first resurrection is for all of those who are saved and have died. And they're they're resurrected. Those raised in the first resurrection, it says in verse number 6, they are blessed and holy because they won't, they're blessed because they won't endure the second death that's talked about in chapter 20 and verse 6 and chapter 20 and verse 14. And that second death is the death of being cast into the lake of fire. They won't endure that. Why? Because it's the resurrection of life for them. They've been resurrected from the dead to life eternal. That's the first resurrection. The second, and we're not going to get to it tonight, but the second resurrection is described in chapter 20 and verse 13. If you drop down and look at verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead. That's the second resurrection. It's all the unsaved who have died without Christ. They're going to be resurrected. We've talked about this before. Everybody lives somewhere forever. The first resurrection is for those resurrected to life. The second resurrection are for those resurrected to damnation. The bodies of all who died without Christ from Adam's day until the end of the millennium are raised at one time. All of those poor souls are going to the great white throne judgment that's described at the end of this chapter in verses 11 through 15. And all of those souls are condemned. They're guilty and condemned and they get no pardon. So there's two resurrections. We've read in verse number, uh, in verse number four, we've read of what the Bible calls the first resurrection. May I tell you this? Do everything you can do to be part of that first resurrection. Come to Jesus Christ. Know Jesus as your Savior. If you do, you're part of that first resurrection. If you don't, you'll be part of the second resurrection and it will be terrible because there's no escaping that judgment. So there's a prophecy involving Satan. There's a prophecy second involving the saints. And then finally in verses 7 through 10, there's a prophecy involving sinners. Verse 7 says, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. That is a number of people who've been born during the 1,000 year reign. And they will not be subject to Jesus any longer. Satan's going to whip them up into a frenzy to rebel against the king of the world, Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10 tell us about the destruction of that massive army. 
So let's let's look at that tonight. First thing we notice in verse seven, we've had we got Satan in the pit. Satan's bound with a chain, can't get out. In verse number seven, you have Satan's freedom. He comes back. He's released. And there is a purpose for his release. It says in verse number three, when he's put into the pit, it says, Satan, did you catch that? Must be loosed for a season. You remember when Jesus in John chapter four said, I must go through Samaria. There was purpose to his going to Samaria to talk to the woman by the well. Here there is purpose being described here. Why is he turned loose? I don't know. I don't know. We've got him. He's defeated. He's bound with a God-made chain. He's in the bottomless pit. Why is he turned loose? We may never know why. I'll give you two possibilities. The first one is so that we can prove the depth of the rebellion in Satan. He has had 1,000 years bound and helpless, absolutely powerless to do anything. That clearly demonstrates God's omnipotence over him. He's had a 1,000 years to consider his ways, and he comes out of that pit, if possible, even more rebellious than when he went in. It proves the depth of his rebellion. If you think about it, every plan that Satan has launched against God has always been thwarted. God has always been in control. For a thousand years, he's proved that he's absolutely in control and took Satan's ability away to do anything, and yet Satan still lives in a rebellious state. That could be a reason he's let out, just to prove it. There's a second reason he could be let out. And this is toward mankind. This event, this thousand-year reign, or, or thousand-year uh, captivity, rather, of Satan, where all satanic influences ended, it demonstrates man's complete inability to save himself, even in a perfect world. For a thousand years, no one will have been able to say, well, the devil made me do it. He didn't. You did it all by yourself. When that massive army shows up in rebellion at the end of the 1,000-year reign, they're going to be there with, with, they're going to be there. They're going to have a heart that is still subject to Satan's temptation. For all that time, however long they've been alive, they have not bowed in their own heart. They've not bowed to Satan or, or to Jesus Christ so that when Satan shows up, there's seeds there for Satan. There's room there for Satan to work with. This event proves that even in a perfect world, man is depraved. There is no good thing in us. The psalmist said this, I know that in my heart is no good thing. We need Jesus. It's not the devil that always makes me do it. It's my stinking flesh. And the thousand-year reign of Christ proves that. Left to themselves in a perfect world, People will still go away from God. Write down, we don't have time to turn there, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans 10, verses, or Romans 3, verses 10 through 23. Man will always do that. So Satan regains his freedom, first of all, Satan's freedom. Second, in verses 8 and 9, Satan's forces. The rapture has occurred, the tribulations occurred, Jesus has come back. A perfect world. Where is the devil going to find this vast army in a world that has not known war or poverty or disease? For a thousand years. Where does he find his army? It's a perfect world. Why wouldn't people just continue following Jesus? There are a lot of people that came into the millennium. Millions have come into the millennium with flesh and blood bodies. They are believing Jews. And they are the tribulation saints, Christians. But they came into the tribulation period. See, you and I aren't coming back. You and I aren't coming uh, uh, back subject to the old flesh. But they're coming into the millennial kingdom still with an old nature. And they're going to have kids. And they're going to have a lot of them. And every person born in the millennial kingdom will be born with a sin nature. You see, the sin nature hasn't been dealt with yet. 
Satan's been taken aside. The world has been crushed. So the world and the flesh have been dealt with, that world system. But our flesh hasn't been dealt with yet. So millions are alive on the planet, and they are children of those who came into the, into the millennium saved, but they themselves being born with a human nature, they're not saved. So here's another sentence I have to read. I can write well, I just can't remember well. So forgive me. Children born during the millennial will during the millennium will be raised in a perfect environment but every person born during that 1000 years has a sin nature and every one of them will have to be saved from their sins by placing their faith in Jesus Christ those that don't satan's going to recruit them for his army in this world where Jesus is physically seen ruling on earth a world governed by old testament new testament and tribulation saints a world lacking, completely lacking disease and war and poverty. In that world, an amazing number of people are still going to refuse to bow to Jesus and they're going to be recruited into Satan's army. They will have kept the rules because they don't want to go to a perfect court. But in their heart, it's like that little family circle. It's like that little family circle cartoon. I, it's, it's the only one I remember. From all the years of family circle, it's the only one I remember where the little boy is sitting in a corner facing the wall because he's been put there for something he did bad, but he's saying, he's got that little thought bubble above his his head, and it says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's these people during the millennial kingdom. Outside, they're going by the rules. Inside, they're tired of it. And when Satan comes and says, Let's go after him. They jump in. And the Bible says this number in verse number 8, the end, of, the end of verse number 8, this number of this army is described as the sands of the sea. It's an amazing army that comes after him. So you have Satan's freedom. He's turned loose. Satan's forces. He goes on a recruitment to build up this army. And then thank the Lord for verses 9 and 10. Satan's finale. His finale. They went up, that army under Satan's leadership, went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, where Jesus is reigning, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet, would you mark that, and I hope your Bible says it, where the beast and the false prophet are, not were, are after a thousand years the beast and the false prophet are still in that lake of fire terrible place they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever this is a great verse you ought to celebrate that some more of you should have said amen at the end of verse number 10 that's the last time the devil is mentioned by name or satan or inference it's the last time we see him in the scripture he's absolutely gone this final assault against Jesus Christ. And, and when we talked about the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period, who was the victor there? Who was the, who was the one that instigated the absolute defeat of everybody? It was Jesus Christ, right? The sword coming out of his mouth. Do you see at the end of the millennial kingdom, it's the father that's had enough of it. And the Bible says he rains down fire and brimstone from heaven. It's not from the king on the throne. It's not the word of God, the the sword going out of Jesus' mouth. Now it's the father that steps in and he's had enough and he rains down fire from heaven. And just like that, this army that is numbered like the sand of the sea, which is an incredible thought, they're gone. And then it says the devil himself. Now here's the thing. Verse number 10 says, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. It's worded just like it is for the Antichrist and the false prophet. I don't know that he's devoured by that fire and brimstone. I think he's taken and cast into the lake of fire just like the Antichrist and the false prophet. And he's, he's gone down there. and He's completing the, holy, the unholy trinity being cast into the lake of fire. And when the smoke clears from all of this, it's the omnipotent God that's still standing. When the Old Testament says at least three times in the book of Psalms, 
the Lord God reigneth. Count on that. I don't care what the world circumstance looks like today. Count on this, that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Our God reigns. Remember that praise song that came out in the 80s? Our God reigns. That's a fact. And that's kind of all that song says. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. And at the end of the at the end of the millennium, when they're coming at him the last time, no. This is God that's standing up. It's God that's standing there victorious. And let me say this, he's going to be no more victorious then than he is right now. He's victorious. He is that victorious right now. He's just working out his sovereign plan on this planet to bring the world to his son and to end sin and and death and Satan forever. Now, I've asked this question again and again through the book of Revelation. Whose side are you on? Because there's only two. There's only two. All roads do not lead to heaven. Don't buy into that lie. There is Jesus and there is death. That's it. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus said. Buddha won't get you there. Muhammad won't get you there. Hinduism won't get you there. Good works and baptism and churches won't get you there. It will be by Jesus. Ask yourself whose side you are on. Because victory has already been declared. Rick Sung. Read the back of the book. Jesus wins. And because you and I are in Christ, we are in the beloved, we win. This is absolute truth coming to you from the word of God. We are premillennial Baptists. We believe that the world is getting worse and worse and will endure a terrible period called the tribulation. And at the end of that, Jesus will come and defeat his enemies and usher in a physical, earthly, literal 1,000-year kingdom where he sits on a throne that you can touch. It's a physical throne and will rule the world. And at the end of that 1,000 years, God himself rains down fire from heaven and ends everything wicked. And on that day, the clock goes away. Your calendars are done. My little Franklin planner that I've been working on since 1992, I have no more need of that. Your watches are gone away. Time ends in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10. That's an incredible thought. It's an incredible thought. Church, one day you and I are going to be part of a 1,000-year preview on this earth of what heaven's going to be like. We'll have a perfect world. And it's, it's just a preview. It's not eternity. It's just a preview. But it's going to be great. No more death. Uh, no more sorrow. No more devil. No more Mark's sinful flesh. Just everything perfect. It's not pie in the sky. It is the word of God. And it's already settled. I can't change it. You can't change it. So let's sit back and enjoy it. Take the peace and the comfort that God wants us to have in these dark days. And let that be your hope. Let that be what you stand on. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And I can't wait to see him. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer tonight. Father, we look forward to the day you're coming. And to settle all scores. You've been keeping tabs on Satan and you've kept him on a leash and a chain. You've been keeping tabs on what we're doing in this world as your children. You know what we're suffering and where we're failing. You know the exact date, Father, of the return of your son. And if we had our way, it'd be tonight. We would pray with John even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and that would be our heart. 
If it's not, then we're praying, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful. And when we're struggling and when we're suffering and when the world seems to offer absolutely no hope of it getting better, help us to turn our attention back to your word, whether it's Isaiah's prophecies or John's words in the book of Revelation. Help us to remember the day that's coming when everything is going to be made right and we get a front row seat. We're looking forward to seeing you, Jesus. Help us to always love your appearing. Help us to live every day that we have as if it were the day that you're coming back and help us to prioritize our lives and be ready for that day, to invest what we can into eternity and to live for the world that's yet to come. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus, and we praise you for it. Amen. God bless you, church. Glad you're here tonight. Uh, Guests, we're glad to see you too. Thank you for coming this evening. Have a good week.